Welcome to Mirror and a Flashlight, a podcast from the Chicago Women's Health Center. In this podcast, we explore the history, stories, and practices of the Chicago Women's Health Center, for short, CWHC, a feminist collective that has been evolving and transforming for decades. My name is Ariel Mejia your host and producer, here to bring you an episode that once again time travels us to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then back to today. Strap in, y'all, for the incredible history of the CWHC's Alternative Insemination Program, for short, AI. We're going to start with our own CWHC historian, who you've come to know well through listening to this podcast, Terry Kepsalis. If this is your first time listening, I highly recommend going back and listening to episode one and episode four, where Terry continuously situates us in the time machine of this podcast. Terry and I sat down in a Zoom room with Sandy McNabb. My name is Sandy McNabb, and uh, I was at the health center from 1989 until 2003, I believe. I'm really excited to share this episode with y'all because this story is so much more than about the health center and its AI program history. Sandy and Terry paint the picture of how CWHC's AI program actually shifted the landscape of parenthood for queers seeking pregnancies in the Midwest. Every insemination in those early days was a pathway to more visibility. And it was that very visibility that opened the doors paved the way, and created a paradigm shift in society around who can be parents. I don't want to say too much, but in this conversation, I was completely floored. A disclaimer about the language in this episode. Because Sandy and Terry do refer to the people they served back in the day as women and lesbians consistently. In the context of Sandy's time at CWHC, people were not using expansive language for how they referred to themselves. Sandy and Terry's language reflect the language used at the time. For these reasons, my language as well is consistent with theirs. This felt important to mention, especially if you heard the previous episode about the history of how the health center came to offer trans-inclusive services, which again, I recommend a listen. Okay, my feminist time-traveling listeners, here is Terry, Sandy, and me. The program started either in the late 1970s or as late as 1980. And it started because of folks reaching out to people who were part of the collective. Apparently, there was a single woman who reached out who wanted to have a baby and wanted to know if the health center could help. And then one of the collective members, one of her children's preschool teachers, wanted to get pregnant and reached out. She and her partner wanted to get pregnant and didn't know how. We were definitely the first services for folks who didn't have access to sperm, single women or lesbians at the time, in the Midwest and possibly in the country. And when the program started, it started with fresh sperm. So this was in the late 1970s, and it was fresh sperm from mainly gay donors and what they would do, would they, they had three donors oftentimes that they would work with and they would mix all the sperm together 
but apparently one of the donor sperm just kind of knocked all the others out of business and all the kids that were born looked exactly like this donor, this gay donor who was also a doctor, who basically said, my sperm is like water and you can have as much as you want. So that's my understanding of, of the beginning of the AI program at a time when lesbian women or so-called unmarried women, single women, were denied services completely within reproductive medicine or would be forced to undergo a battery of psychological tests to prove they were fit mothers in order to go through um, services. In the early 80s is, 82, 83, is when HIV AIDS got on people's awareness and the realization that fresh sperm was not a possibility because the donors couldn't be tested for HIV in a way that made insemination with fresh sperm safe. But at that point, there was finally a sperm bank that would work with so-called unmarried women. That's why they had been working with fresh sperm from known donors, because otherwise there was no access. And it was a really underground program. It was underground because it had to be. Sandy goes into how they kept their clients a secret and why. We did not have their names on their charts. We just had their initials. So we had the AI charts in a different file than everything else. Um, and we each had sort of our own set of clients. So we knew who we were uh, working with. And our reason for doing that was, you know, this was in the... Bush senior years. It was a time when there was a lot of fear. If you had a baby and were a lesbian, was somebody going to take your child away? And so we didn't want to have any record or any chance that we would get pulled into court um, to say how a particular woman got pregnant. As soon as a woman did get pregnant, we gave her chart to her. <laughs> or if she left the program. So it's really hard to find good stats or records from those early days because it was really about us providing access to sperm. We were seriously the only place that would inseminate single or lesbian women without having to go through psychological testing. Seriously, for the Midwest, we had clients who came from Ohio, from way downstate Illinois, from Wisconsin. We, I remember some clients from Iowa. So we had people coming from all over the Midwestern area because there was no place else. Something that was also you and I, when we spoke last, t remarked on was how much time was spent in those initial consults on this issue of coming out. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk oh, yes. a little bit about that. Oh, thank you for bringing that up because I totally forgot about that, but that was a huge deal. I remember being really surprised at first because I was, I mean, on the spectrum of being out, I was out and, you know, was very, very fortunate to have a situation where I could be completely out and be safe and, um, you know, had a supportive family and all of that. But for a lot of people, that was not as clear. And I remember people saying, oh, well, th she's just going to be my roommate and I'm going to be the parent. And talking about that or, well, we're not, gonna, we're not going to tell people, um, 
you know, and we're going to present it this way or that way. And so we talked a lot about that, about how to how to negotiate that, how to talk about it, and the fact that children see who we are, um, regardless of what we want the world to know. Part of what I'm interested in is, is just in our short lives, <laughs> how much has shifted in these last decades, right? In terms of the, the AI program and in terms culturally, I mean, one of the things you talked about also when we spoke was how you felt at that time, late 80s into the 90s, into the early aughts, that basically you probably knew every single lesbian in Chicago who was a parent and had given birth. Oh, yeah. And not just Chicago, but most of the Midwest, unless they had gotten pregnant from a previous relationship or um, and even if they were using a known donor, I, I they probably did a consult with us to know how to do an insemination at home with a known donor. So I even knew people in that way. Like it, it was pretty funny because I was like, oh, yeah, I, re- I remember them. Or, you know, like you'd see somebody or, you know, and it, it was. And I remember when that shifted, when um, the world started opening up, probably it was certainly after it was late 90s, I would say, or early 2000s, where there were, uh, st- there started to be a lot of other opportunities for people to get pregnant. Um, and at that point, I, I was like, oh, wow, I don't, I don't know all the lesbians with kids anymore. And, um, you know, which was, it was a good thing. I was very pleased with that to know that there were so many other opportunities for women, but it was, it, it was very different than it was now. Like, I, I remember, I, you know, even up to my child was born in 2004 and and even when they were born i did not have any um any sense that you know i i hoped that i would be able to adopt them i think at that point i knew but in the up until the late 90s i didn't really know that i would be able to that my partner and i would both be able to be legally parents of a child um, but I did know by the time they were born, I realized, because we, we were able to do it. There had been cases in Illinois by that point. According to the Free Law Project, whose mission is to provide free access to primary legal materials, we see the first same-sex second-parent adoption in Illinois was in 1995. However, it was not until 2016 that same-sex adoption became legal in all 50 states. With same-sex marriage as well, that was another situation where you know, gave protections that I had, I had thought maybe I would see in my lifetime, but wasn't even sure about that. Um, and so, so just thinking of all of those bigger pictures that I think had people, people had a lot more reasons to be closeted and to be fearful of being able to be out and loud and proud of their families. I think it's also important to talk about the fact that a lot of folks came to us because of the kind of care that they received, right? So even when reproductive medicine became such a cash cow that folks had the opportunity to go elsewhere, 
one of the things they got from us in addition to very low cost sliding scale services was an absence of homophobia, an absence of queer phobia. In fact, a supportive, caring, compassionate place. Because it's easy to forget what folks, even in urban places at that time, faced. Not only was it a place that <clears throat> they didn't have to worry about homophobia, but it was a place where we, you know, as with all of the services at Chicago Women's Health Center, we weren't gatekeeping. We were there to give them access and to teach them about their bodies. And the fact that their partner could actually be the one to push the syringe and do the insemination for some people was like mind blowing that they could have that kind of control over their bodies and their experience uh, with each other. The syringe is connected to a very thin cannula, which is a little tiny tube that goes through the cervix into the uterus, which is what the sperm enters through. Still today, partners or friends can press the syringe down that's filled with the sperm that flows through the cannula and into the uterus. This is the process of intrauterine insemination, also called IUI. All of that fit into the package of how different we were and how important it was for us to be able to provide that service for people. Since we're in our time machine, we can take a look out the windows to see the entire landscape of what lesbian life was like in the late 80s through the 90s. Society at the time did not see lesbians as mothers as people with families, as people with AIDS, as people reflected in media or culture whatsoever. It was in 1989 where um, their ACT UP was very, you know, that was when they were in their heyday. It was right after like Reagan was gone and now George Bush was in office and people were dying of AIDS and nothing was being done about it. So there were die-ins in the streets. We did kiss-ins. I remember doing a kiss-in. Recently, an amorous group of lesbians staged a kiss-in at Michigan Avenue's Water Tower Place. So we decided one of the best ways to be visible, both within our community and then within the straight world, is to actually put my tongue in another woman's mouth on the, on the city street. And there's no mistaking that. You know, if my tongue is in her mouth, it's We're not, not friends, invisible. Not we are a part sisters, of needing to be recognized as well. And so there was this whole ACT UP movement to do billboards around Chicago. And so we did a, um, a lesbian billboard. So we all, I remember the photo shoot, we were all together and kissing each other or sitting on each other's laps. But it was there, again, to, to increase visibility, which was part of that early stage. Like, lesbians weren't seen. They, you know, they weren't seen anywhere in on television or movies or any kind of media. During that time, it is, it's so weird to think of how much has shifted since then. And the invisibility of lesbian motherhood too. And that was something that shifted. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that because while you were working in the AI program, lesbian motherhood, the, the visibility of it shifted. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. I had um, one couple that I worked with that I just loved them. They were farmers that lived in southern Illinois. And I remember once once the woman that was getting pregnant got pregnant, She um, once she started showing and her neighbors, the neighboring farmers, realized that she was pregnant, 
uh, a farmer came and approached wondering if they were selling their farm because assumed that she had had an affair. Like everybody knew that they were together, but sort of assumed that they must be splitting up because she was pregnant. And, you know, were they going to sell off their farm? Um, because, again, it was just not something that that people knew lesbians could do. Um, so, yeah, during that shift, it did come from the fact of, I mean, I think people had to come out in a different way once it became more accepted. There was the shift of this secrecy to then realizing, and it, it was, it's like the 100th monkey's story where it's like all of a sudden it was like this mass level there were enough lesbians with kids that then it shifted and and then it was okay and people are like oh are you going to have a baby like people would ask even before if you were even thinking about it or making the assumption and again we could go into a whole tangent about the assumption that all women want to have babies and and that whole piece instead of having the choice of whether you want to be a parent or not but you know, assuming that if you're in a steady partnership, that the next step is having a baby. But I think there was that shift from either not understanding that you were together and had a baby to then making the assumption that you would want to have the baby. So I got to personally interject here because at this point in the conversation, I felt my heart rate go up, heat rise in my cheeks, and my eyes began to well up with tears. I'm a dyke who wants to be pregnant, and in this moment, I was actually seeing the trajectory of how someone like me in 2021 can so readily access sperm and believe in myself as a parent, unlike so many people before me could not. It was the work of these people I was on the call with who were instrumental in the change for people like me to be able to so readily access pregnancy through every insemination that Sandy and Terry and the rest of the team took part in. That was a step closer to increasing visibility, which is ultimately what altered access for queers to find paths to pregnancy. You getting, helping people to be pregnant change the landscape and just like that feels very personal to me and makes me feel quite emotional <laughs> and uh yeah I just wanted to say that um and I wonder I don't know if if you think about that way and think about yourself as somebody clearly so instrumental in changing that for people like me and you know like the queers today that and that have kids so naturally when we know that you know that's not how it was sorry it's like making me misty <laughs> to think about yeah, no, that's me too a little bit here now. Uh, <laughs> We're going to fast forward about 30 years or so to present day. Noshaba is the current AI coordinator and is going to bring us into the present for what access and visibility look like now and how alternative insemination is directly linked to her work around birthing justice. One of the things that I love telling people about is fertile mucus. Fertile mucus is just so cool. Today, insemination services are prevalent. As this program that was once so underground and niche now has been made part of the medical industrial complex, how does CWHC continue to offer this service that is particular to their model? Noshaba is going to take us through it. 
My name is Noshaba, and I'm outside of the health center. I'm also a fertility, birth, and postpartum doula. I also coordinate the alternative insemination program there. The narratives we hear and see in popular media about what happens when somebody get, goes into labor are so inaccurate. And um, birthing people have so much fear around pregnancy and specifically labor and birth. Um, and it's because we don't see it, we don't know it. And so when people with that we see as authorities tell us that, well, we need all these kinds of interventions and that pregnancy needs to be controlled and monitored so that you can stay safe and your uh, babies can stay safe, we believe them. Sometimes intervention is necessary. It's when it's not necessary that it, like, that it can be a big problem. One way that it links up really well to my work as a birth worker, our program is specifically for single, queer, lesbian, and trans people. We assume that the reason our clients are not pregnant is not necessarily because they have any fertility issues, but because they don't have access to sperm. What we do is we have a very low intervention approach. We teach people how to chart their cycles based on their body's fertility signs. Now, a lot of times what happens is people who are lesbian, queer, or trans will go to a fertility clinic because they are not sure where to go to, or they sp speak with their OBGYNs, right? Um, and uh, a lot of times uh, these folks are told that um, they need medication when they don't need medication or they're offered medication as if like it's not a big deal. If you're single, queer or older and go to a fertility clinic, more often than not, the first thing you are offered is drugs. Clomid is a prescribed medication that stimulates an increase in the amount of hormones that support the growth and release of a mature egg, also known as ovulation. It is important to know Shaba and CWHC's approach to get acquainted with the client's health history, to know if this is necessary, because the side effects can mean that there will be a limited number of cycles that people can then attempt insemination after they take Clomid. So it's really important that people know if they even need it versus just being prescribed it because they are someone interested in undergoing the process of IUI. But if you don't need it, you don't need it. We are doing these monthly uh, alternative insemination information sessions for folks who want to learn more about our approach and process. It's completely free. Donations are always welcome. Noshaba tells me a story about a woman who came to an info session for her daughter to learn more about the process because she had been having difficulty with the fertility clinic she had been working with. She urged her daughter to call CWHC. I had a brief, like, 15-minute conversation with her and uh, one thing that she said is that this is the first time I've been able to speak to someone for this long. And mind you, it was only 15 minutes. Noshaba hears this a lot, she says. This woman was overprescribed an array of hormones, had three IUIs done across that 18-month period, spent tens of thousands of dollars, and told ultimately she had to do in vitro fertilization, also known as IVF which is a complex series of procedures, to put it lightly. When the client's medical records were carefully reviewed, everything looked very normal. Noshaba told the client how it takes an average of four cycles, and based on her history and records, medication should not be necessary. She got pregnant after the second cycle. IVF is where folks make the most money. Connecting that again back to 
like birthing justice, like pregnancy is seen as a pathology, right? Being queer, trans, lesbian, and single and older, like all of that is pathologized when you are wanting to create a pregnancy. Another aspect of what feels different and profound about the AI program today is the language, specifically using the word alternative instead of artificial. The people are more familiar with the term artificial insemination, and we um, intentionally do not use that term because we don't believe that any one way of getting pregnant, if that's what someone is wanting to do, is any more or any less natural than another uh, way. Using the term like natural when it comes to talking about alternative insemination does um, kind of uh, create this hierarchy for like who can get pregnant and like, oh, you needed help. They should be celebrated individually. Their lives should be celebrated. Their like relationships and families uh, should also be celebrated. It, it's like such a like normal part of my language. Um, and I think our language at the health center that when I hear artificial, it just sounds weird. Like there's nothing artificial about this, you know? Millennials are having kids at an average age much older than our previous generation. In 2018, in a New York Times article, there's a graph detailing that in 2016, the average age people are giving birth in New York and San Francisco is 31 and 32, while a half generation earlier, it was 20 and 21. There is also a rise in people seeking pregnancy if they're single, sans life partner, no matter their age. All of this is part of what CWHC is working to destigmatize today. Because of the assumptions made around the people who can and should have kids and the people that can't and shouldn't. It's more and more common now that people are choosing to have babies later in life as well. So, and that's, that's great and that's fine. And like, you don't need to have found like a life partner or a romantic partner to do that. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Now, we do all need support and need like, you know, communities, um, but it doesn't have to look like capitalist and like patriarchal idea of what and and, like white supremacist idea of what a nuclear family uh, should look like. There are a number of people who will come in and be nervous or anxious based on their age. It could be someone who's 38 or 41, but it's also people who are 29 and 32. And so what I tell them is that, yes, statistically, if you are 35 or older, it can be more difficult to get pregnant. But when you actually look at the numbers, it's very, very slight. So we look at the individual person and their bodies and what their bodies are doing and what their like cycles look like. So Um, your age alone is not going to tell me anything. Now, if someone is uh, over the age of 40, yes, we do actually want to start with some basic blood work to make sure that there is, uh, that this will be a viable option for them. But otherwise, it's like, yeah, we want to look at what your body is doing. I would love for everyone to learn about their body's fertility signs. They don't have to do a whole lot of tracking if they don't want to, but just to know what those signs are. Most people don't need a lot of intervention at all. 
Most people just need to introduce sperm at the right time. To learn more about cervical mucus and the AI program, visit CWHC's website and sign up for a fertility awareness course. I've been tracking my cycle for months now, and it's really cool to get acquainted with your body in this particular way. For me, any embodied practice of connecting with myself, I am all about. Thank you so much to Sandy McNabb and Noshaba Bhatti, and also to Terry Capsalis for participating in these conversations and for her ongoing editorial support. With Terry, this episode was edited by Sarah Becca Gaglio and AJ Barks. To watch the whole segment on the lesbian kissin featured on The 10% Show, check out GerberHeart.org, the Midwest LGBTQ library and archive. Learn more about Chicago Women's Health Center and this podcast at ChicagoWomen'sHealthCenter.org. Mirror and a Flashlight is made possible by CWHC's Community of Support. Our special thanks to Corbett versus Dempsey, Women Unite, Early to Bed, Women and Children First Bookstore, Laura McAlpine Consulting for Growth, and Mats Gustafsson and Catalytic Sound.